From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, including how we can help you apply lean thinking, please visit lean.org. Welcome to the WLEI Podcast with the Lean Enterprise Institute. In today's episode, we discuss the labor shortage problem in the hospitality industry and what lean thinking can do to address it. We challenge recent takes on assigning blame to lean for supply chain problems, and we discuss the emergence of a new sort of customer value with NFTs and an innovative application in the restaurant industry. Let's jump in. Welcome, everybody, to the WLEI podcast. I'm Matt Savas, Executive Director of Content and Marketing for the Lean Enterprise Institute. I'm joined today by President Josh Howell and Rich Vellante, Executive Director of Events and Administration. How are you guys doing this morning? Very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, doing good. Happy to be with you, Happy to be with you guys. Awesome. All right. Well, um, we got a few topics that we want to tee up for discussion this morning. Uh, the one that uh, we're going to dig into first is all about uh, the labor shortage. It's all you read about in the news today. Right, I'm going to start off with a quote here from the Wall Street Journal talking about the state of the job market in the industry. Uh, employment remains down by 1.3 million jobs since the pandemic began. By contrast, employment has bounced back beyond pre-pandemic levels in many other sectors. Um, this comes from June, so back this summer, but really hasn't been much change in the industry since then. And they quote a bunch of people who have left the industry and picked up new jobs. Uh, this is a quote from a gentleman named Zach Lieberich. He's a former line cook at a Denver food hall. He has since transitioned to the cannabis industry where he trims pot plants. Uh, he works 7 to 3 p.m., He's quoted as saying the new job offers similar pay, but extra benefits such as paid time off. And uh, he hopes to make a career in the new field. He says it brought a needed Zen into my life. The kitchen can be very frantic and very taxing. It was a good change of pace. Rich, you worked in the restaurant industry for what, 40, 40 years. I mean, you've experienced. You're dating me. 40 years. <laughs> good Lord. Not that much. 40 years. My God. <laughs> Oh, 35 I was years. just popping out of the womb. I've been with, with uh, I was with Legal Seafoods for 25 of those 35 years. So what's your, what's your take on what's happening in this industry? What did the pandemic wake people up to? Yeah. And why aren't people going back to these jobs? Yeah, I'm a bit of a product of that myself. That's um, right. You work for us now. You know, yeah. I work at LEI. Um, you know, I, for me, I think the pandemic really... Um, exposed some of the things that uh, have been going on in, in certain industries and the restaurant being one of those industries, the restaurant industry. Um, it's, it's hard work. And what does that mean? Hard work. It's uh, I think you mentioned it in that quote is uh, frantic was one of the words mm. that was used. It's uh, high stress. It's hot. Uh, it's a challenging um, position, uh, but not just from the kitchen side, but also from the, from the waitstaff side. Um, yeah. There are very low margins. Uh, everyone wants to come in at one specific time and mm. be treated a certain way. And there's a, this, the customer expectation. And I think the challenge too of the restaurant business is that the pay scale is is so different from uh, wait staff to mm. the kitchen. It's it's dispersed differently because so of tipping. 
because of tipping mm. and it is our culture, the tipping culture here in the U S that, um, uh, you mix that in with, um, kind of a gig type of work environment where it's not anyone's career, except for usually someone in the kitchen, yet they're being paid the least amount in the it's, restaurant crew. It's interesting that you say that because the Wall Street Journal also did an interview with um, a woman named Amanda Cohen. She owns a restaurant in New York City called Dirt Candy. And she's quoted as saying that um, she wanted to make working at Dirt Candy feel less like a gig and more like a career. And she attributes recent success in her restaurant to things like raising wages to $25 an hour, offering people health insurance, paid leave. She eliminated tipping for the exact region that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's, it's, it's certainly not a, a, a panacea solution to every restaurant's issues, right. but it certainly, she would seem to agree with yeah. you that, you know, I can appreciate her efforts there. Mm -hmm. And um, I think she's addressing some of the issues. And when you look at the European model, I had the opportunity to work in Europe and it's a career. Yeah. So it's, it's approached differently. Um, so, so she's touching on some of the things that, that uh, from the surface makes sense. I, I think one of the other things that uh, the restaurant industry needs to really think about is the model itself mm. and okay. Wages are really important. Uh, creating an environment that is much more important. But if you do all of those things and still introduce an individual that is being paid a little bit more, uh, perhaps has a few more benefits, but yet works seven days a week, uh, is in a frantic environment mm -hmm. because there's no real durable stability uh, in the processes in uh, what's happening uh, in everyday life in the restaurant world. Um, you can pay as much as you like, but it's more of, can you endure this difficult environment and how long can you do that for as you begin to become more mature and realize that there are other opportunities out there? Um, I think the restaurant world has to rethink, um, beyond just an increased pay wage. Mm. And I couldn't agree more, Rich. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you, since we've known each other, you've talked a lot about, um, or I hear a lot from guys like you and others in the industry about the physical nature of the work. Uh, you happen to be a former linebacker, mm -hmm. you're a physical fit, strong guy. And yet it still comes to mind for you, how physically challenging the work in this environment is. Uh, I often thought, you know, back when I was working at Starbucks that in fact, the way that the work was designed was discriminatory. There were people who simply could not, work in a coffee shop. There are people who cannot work uh, in a kitchen yeah. uh, because the work is just so physically demanding. In fact, I had a barista uh, in, in one of the stores that I managed that literally had a panic attack uh, in the middle of a morning rush because of the demands, the intensity uh, of that work environment. And we've learned enough to know that it just doesn't have to be that way, that there are ways to, as you, as you put it, bring durable stability make the work safer, make the work less physically demanding, make it less intense, less stressful. Uh, it is possible. But um, if those things aren't addressed, I agree with you. I don't think it's just, just a matter of pay. Well, let's, benefits. let's talk about that a little bit more because, you know, businesses are dealing with these problems now. And I would say from the lean enterprise Institute's perspective, we, we have some thoughts about what businesses can do now to solve some of these issues. Josh, you recently wrote, about um, an experience with a local organization um, that's struggling with hiring enough people to support uh, fall rush. 
mm-hmm. um, your own experience at Starbucks and lean, uh, transforming that organization, how stores operate. Um, you know, what does what would you say lean thinking has to say about how to support these businesses by making jobs better? Well, there's a few things I think that um, that we'd like to focus on. It was definitely a part of the work that um, that Rich, you and I did together. Uh, Matt, you were a part of some of that too uh, with Legal Seafoods. Um, there's, you know, on, on sort of the input side coming into the operation, I think there are ways to um, kind of levelize what happens uh, within the operation, the work itself. It tends to be an industry that's characterized by these intense peaks and often these long valleys, but, you know, that that kind of volatility, that instability um, brings with it tremendous stress, especially in those peak periods. So, you know, there's things, there's tactics that we can deploy to kind of levelize things out. Uh, once that condition is established, then there are ways to sort of design more routine, kind of easier to execute work um, with less bending, less reaching, less running around, less banging into one another um, that again can bring uh, some relief to what has traditionally been a very physically demanding, stressful physical uh, environment. Those would be a couple of the things that I think are uh, key to uh, improving the working conditions that exist in, in hospitality. What about your experience at Legal Seafood, Rich? I mean, was there a point where you saw a change in how work was done where you felt like this is this is not as taxing, this is not as demanding, workers are feeling better when they finish a day on the line? Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting to bring that up because um, Josh alluded to to some of it is beginning to really understand uh, your operating process. Why do we do things? How do we do things? And how do we support each position? So w- what I mean by that is um, we talked about a little bit earlier. What attracted me to this business was that physicality, mm-hmm. who could survive the, the difficult situation to live the next day. And, and you hear a lot of um, famous chefs talking about this is that when the time that I got into the, the restaurant world, it was that attracted me. Like I'm tougher than everyone else. I can live through this. And so it was about the individual. But when you really think about it, there were so many times at legal seafoods where we would say, um, you know, you, you'd allow a cook to go down. We'd say going down like power windows, mm. you know, they go, oh, they're going to have to survive <laughs> through themselves. Right. So um, <clears throat> they're in the weeds. You hear that a lot. Yeah. And it was like, well, they're going to have to figure it out and survive. And we would say, you know, if this person couldn't handle it, then they're no good. Let's find another one that can handle it instead of really focusing on the process. Because mm-hmm. when we when we slowed down a little bit and started to do the work that Josh was just mentioning is like, how do we how do we really start to look at what they have to prepare, how they have to prepare it, how long they t- it takes to prepare it? And we start looking at the pressure of the demand mm. and you look at the two. You say not very few humans can actually do this unless they are superhuman. Exactly. So we're like, we learned to say, you know, let's let's be hard on the process, not on the person. Mm. I think you're putting and, your finger on it, Rich. I, I you know, I, um, at LEI over the last handful of years, we've, we've really been promoting this methodology. We refer to it as lean product and process development. In the experience that I've had in this industry, there is there is intense focus, rightly so, on like the product, right? The entree that that 
uh, you're going to put a recipe together for the espresso drink that Starbucks is going to introduce uh, or whatnot, but almost virtually no effort and intention put into the process side of that, like the work required to prepare that entree, the work required to prepare that beverage. And until that changes, until it's product and process development uh, that's running through R&D departments or running through, you know, you had a test kitchen at Legal Seafoods where you were developing menu items, until that process dimension is attached to the product development dimension, uh, the stuff is going to change. But it's it's utterly missing um, from any of the work that's that that happens in this industry. I think um, you know paying better attention to that and giving folks uh, the know-how, the tools required to do good process development uh, is uh, is is an area with tremendous potential and and needed. Desperately yeah, and needed. That, and that's the key point. I mean, you can pay anyone what you want, and it's it's admirable. But if there's a gap between that leadership that Josh is just talking about and the actual work being done, you're still getting frantic environments mm. and, and chaotic environments. And it's true, the restaurant world and, and anything in that this this section, uh, this space, you have a lot of passionate people that love to focus on the recipes and and have passion for those recipes. But they forget that there are processes around that recipe and how it's done and how it should be done and what's the most effective way to have it be done. And what you find in restaurants and in many places is this this mentality of making it in a big batch. Like I need to make sure that I am going to survive this shift. Mm. So I will make as much as I can to survive and I'll live through this night so that I can show up again tomorrow. So it's this kind of hoarding mentality in the kitchens and any kitchen that you work in, people hide the, the towels, people hide their knives, people hide their ingredients. Like there's this, there's this reality of like, where is this all being hidden? And we know that any kitchen you go into, who, who, which cook is hiding it and where? Well, I remember when I first showed up to, to one of the legal seafoods restaurants, a very busy one, um, Pecorino cheese was, I remember the saute cook was holding <laughs> God knows how many pans of pecorino cheese because it's a pain to shred pecorino cheese. You got to get out the Roboku. Mm -hmm. You got to cut up the block of cheese. You got to shred it. That's kind of a mess. You got to pour the cheese into a pan. And so you have to do that during service. You're You're done. done. You're going down the power windows. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, that, that, that hoarding, that batching is totally understandable. I mean, these are workers, these are cooks that have been, that have been, you know, crushed in the past by not having hidden that, you know, preferred tool or not having prepped a bunch, uh, a, a big batch of ingredients and they suffered as a consequence. And to that individual, the, you know, the, the available kind of countermeasure, the idea that they, that they have to, to prevent that from happening again in the future is to hoard, is to batch. But again, what we've, um, I think, shown uh, with multiple organizations is there is, there is another way to approach that. Uh, there is a way to get close, to, to get away from batching, to get away from hoarding, to get closer to one by one, to get closer to routine work. Um, but that's an operating system challenge. It's not something that an individual cook uh, or an individual worker, a barista, um, let's say, can, can handle on their own. It's an operating system thing, which again, I mean, Rich, you can talk about your culinary education. 
um, operating system was not a topic uh, that gets oh. covered in culinary education. It's all about the product, but the process, the operating system, uh, that's just something that, uh, that, that you're left on your own to kind of figure out. So one example of what Matt was talking about, like the difficulty of making that cheese, um, we learned to offline certain items. So uh, in a lot of restaurants, <clears throat> what you do is you are in charge of your section and your, your saute person is in charge of all of the mise en place. The mise en place is what they um, prepare before the service. We learn to offline that. And um, what essentially it does is that the individual, <clears throat> excuse me, the individual that is uh, afraid to have to make this Pecorino Romano cheese during the night, they're going to make a lot of it to survive. Well, what we've done is we've offlined that work to someone that we called at Legal Seafoods a, a linebacker. So they would have this ability to know how much was left in the pan. If, if let's say there's a, a, a small amount left, they would make more and deliver it to the saute person. The saute person can focus on what they're doing, what they're cooking, and not worry about getting into the weeds, having to cook, having to make this Pecorino Romano so that they can survive through the night. There's someone behind them that is prepping this and delivering it just in time for them to use it in their other dishes, which, which evens things out, which calms things down, exactly. um, which really helps the cook focus on cooking and not worried about, oh my God, I'm running out of this. I'm going to have to run to the walk-in. I'm going to have to go find it. That, that, that just takes you off of your real work. And so you're not creating yeah. any value. You're running around like crazy and then you're frantic and, and then you turn into that individual that Matt read about. I, I just don't want to be in this situation anymore. I'd yeah. rather cut marijuana and be calm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Having that totally. support system in place where you have a you have working product, backup product. When the working pan empties, somebody's there to replenish it. Also, it has repercussions the following morning because prep is happening continuously. You don't need 15 cooks to show up at 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning to restock their stations. And I mean, that, that frantic exercise begins when that door opens at eight mm -hmm. and you have people rushing to get product, to get tools, to get equipment so they can get ready. Like you said, to, to survive. I mean, um, these are guys, these are the, these are production system, operating system fundamentals, you know, in other industries such as manufacturing, they go back decades, the separation of the work of like assembling things, transforming objects, separate from the work of bringing those parts, you know, that conveyance work to the person who's there assembling and transforming those objects. I mean, that's been standard in industries like manufacturing forever. But uh, in, in this case, in hospitality and restaurants, uh, it's just not. And that's, you know, that's the specific kind of characteristic of the um, more effective operating system, production system that, that this industry could really benefit from. And that would bring calm. I don't know about Zen necessarily, but would bring more calm, more stability to the, to the work and, and to the employment experience. We'll say to every restaurant in, in owner, you can learn all of those concepts with LEI's workbooks, learning to see, creating continuous flow, making materials, uh, making materials flow all spelled out there. All the answers that you need are in those books. Um, all right. So um, from one crisis to another, and um, you know, in this case, we're saying that lean thinking can help an industry. 
In another case, uh, we have the New York Times saying that lean thinking is destroying our supply chain. Uh, a few weeks ago on the Daily Podcast, a podcast that I, I listen to regularly, uh, we had uh, a reporter, Peter Goodman, and uh, Sabrina Tabernisi talking about the state of the supply chain. And really, Peter Goodman goes on to assign blame to a lot of the issues we're facing to lean thinking. Uh, I'll just read a quote here. There's a big picture element that we need to reckon with. And that's that for really four decades, publicly traded companies have been under tremendous pressure to go as lean as possible. We've been living through a time when so-called just-in-time manufacturing has been the mantra. Publicly traded companies are answerable to shareholders in $1 that they spend warehousing a part as a hedge against some problem in the global supply chain. Well, that's a dollar they can't use to pay a bonus to the executives who run that company. That's a dollar they can't use to pay out in dividends to shareholders. Um, I think that's a pretty crude take on lean thinking, Josh, but um, I don't know. What's your reaction to, to that quote, the podcast in general there? It's a totally crude take. Um but one that we've seen taken repeatedly right. uh, in the press for years. I mean, this isn't a new thing. It's certainly been highlighted because of the massive supply chain disruption that we're all experiencing, uh, the risks of inflation that are increasing by the day, by the hour. Um, but like in that quote, you know, I mean, he's conflating two things um, to make inventory levels as quote unquote lean as possible I mean, if you're using just the the sort of the literal uh, definition of that term, lean, perhaps that's a an, an appropriate phrase to use. But then he brings in just in time, um, which in this case he, he he is in fact defining just in time as just the least amount of inventory um, possible, uh, which of course is not uh, representative of what just in time is all about. Just in time is to put all inventory in time so that it's always available in any virtually uh, any situation. Um, I, 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 I do, I am perceiving from subsequent uh, reporting, in, including by uh, Peter Goodman himself uh, and others. I just watched a, a, um, a report on uh, in PBS's News Hour the other day. There does seem to be perhaps. Um, blame place being placed in other areas um, through uh, ongoing reporting of the supply chain issue. So I'm hopeful that that because lean just in time have been kind of unfairly um, criticized, blamed for what's happening in the supply chain. Uh, the issue is so massive. There's so much reporting happening on it that people do seem to be looking at other causes of what's going on and not just going to this lazy analysis uh, that we that you quoted in that article. Uh, that puts blame on lean, uh, in fact, without an, uh, an accurate understanding of what lean and just-in-time uh, is, in fact, all about and trying to achieve. It's not just to reduce inventory uh, and put yourself at risk uh, of disruption and stockouts. That is, is there an element exactly of what this, lean is not. Is there an element of this, um, and I'd love to hear your thinking of this, of um, using the tool incorrectly or misunderstanding the, the tool itself, meaning um, what some people think lean is all about versus what lean thinks lean should be about. Or well, what you I, think I, I think there can be different layers of misunderstanding. In this case, with, 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 this, with this 
reporting here, I, I think it's just a, a total misunderstanding of just even basic business practice. I mean, you can't expect a business to, to warehouse every part for every product they produce uh, to prepare for a once in a generation event. Mm -hmm. That just doesn't exactly. make any once sense. in a century. And when it comes to things like PPE, that yes, we need to have that available for a crisis like this. Well, you can't rely necessarily on, I would say the private sector to do that. I would say that's something the federal government needs to decide, okay, are we going to insure against this possibility or not? And if so, how much are we going to do that? Um, also, I mean, they, they say sort of strange things as if uh, shipping from Asia is uh, a, a handy way to keep lead times low with just-in-time shipping. That doesn't make any sense. It's weeks of lead time. And uh, companies, in fact, keep warehouses, many warehouses, so they can store uh, the inventory they need to hold from Asia so that they can ship to their factories um, wherever they're, they're producing. And so I, I, I think it's, uh, I don't know, like Josh said, I think it's a pretty lazy analysis of, of the issue. I also think, you know, um, this misperception um, this, that, that lean is all about making more money. In this case, they say it's making more money for executives and shareholders. Yes, uh, you know, the outcome of uh, lean enterprise should be a more profitable enterprise, but the means by which you get there should also lead to many more positive things. You know, it's, it's driven by improvement, something that we call Kaizen. And Kaizen is only possible through developing the problem-solving capability of the people inside of an organization. Um, and real capability development relies on things like job security. You're going to invest in people. They need to be around for a long time. Um, and so companies that do this well invest a lot in their people. Um, and they create what we would say are better jobs than, than companies who, who aren't doing this. And so no I profit sorry, Matt, go ahead. Yeah. I, I just think there are a lot of, you know, there are different layers of how you can, um, as, as you asked, Rich, you know, uh, misunderstand the, the tool. I think the New York Times just totally missed the mark, but um, you know, beyond that, there are many other layers that I think that they just totally whiff mm -hmm. on here. Yeah. I mean, the purpose, the value and increasing profitability uh, can certainly be to the exclusive benefit of executives. That happens, no, no question. But it's also necessary for the topic that we were talking about earlier. I mean, for that restaurant owner uh, that you quoted earlier, Matt, um, who's committed to paying higher wages, well, that's, that's going to be you know, straining to the business model. Uh, unless she's able to find ways uh, to increase productivity and subsequently increase profitability. So, um, you know, we, we, we want that, that profitability, we want that capacity to be generated. The question becomes, uh, how's that going to be applied? Uh, and with lean thinking and its, you know, deep philosophy around respect for people and the necessity, as you put it, Matt, to um, engage those folks, support those folks, um, Kind of unleash them and equip them to be effective problem solvers. Um, all that you know um, requires us to to be as mindful of how these gains, these profitability gains, capacity gains, can benefit uh, team members, frontline team members, uh, as much as it is executives. But certainly, that is not uh, that is not the only goal and desirable outcome uh, from applying lean to any operation or supply chain. Right. Well, 
we got to end on a, on a more fun topic rather than two crises here. So uh, <laughs> I want to transition into something that I find deeply exciting. This is uh, NFTs, Ooh, specifically a go. restaurant NFT concept. For those of you who don't know what an NFT is, don't worry. I don't know either. Pretty sure people who invented this stuff don't know what they are. No, non-fungible tokens. Um, I am going to read directly from Ethereum's website, the uh, crypto that underlies uh, non-fungible tokens. Um, these things are used to represent ownership of unique items. They let us tokenize things like art, collectibles, even real estate. They can only have one official owner at a time and they're secured by the Ethereum blockchain. No one can modify the record of ownership or copy paste a new NFT into existence. So um, these things are blowing up. Uh, artist named Beeple sold an NFT for what, $60 million at an auction back in February or March this year. And um, again, what are you buying? You're buying proof of ownership to a digital asset. Digital assets are infinitely uh, replicable. And so how do you assign ownership um, to, to anybody? Well, an NFT is able to do that uh, through the blockchain. Again, I'm not going to pretend to know how this actually works. But the other interesting thing here is um, it allows the creator to stay uh, financially invested in their original asset. And so if that NFT is subsequently sold to the one by Beeple, well, Beeple is going to get a cut of the action. And that's insured because of how all of this stuff is uh, connected again, on the blockchain. That's a pretty less than 101 level explanation of this stuff. <laughs> um, but I bring this up because I think, you know, what does this have to do with lean thinking? Lean begins with customer value, and we are beginning to see new types of value emerge very rapidly. And these things are moving already out of the digital realm into the physical realm. And here we have one with a restaurant concept. Um, this is being backed by a group called VCR. You can check out um, uh, the explanation. They did an interview with CNBC. I encourage everybody to check it out, but um, Rich, you brought this. Uh, you, you brought this to my attention. Can you just briefly explain what yeah. what a res restaurant NFT concept is? So I think this is brilliant, and this is a way of when you're in the restaurant business, you're always saying, "How do you leverage your assets?" And what are those assets? Well, in this restaurant group, they realized the asset is the table. Like, what's the one thing yeah. that when you think about going to a restaurant uh, that's valuable? And on a Saturday night or a certain night, or if it's a restaurant that's, you know, a hot restaurant, tough to get in, it's getting a table. So yeah. you think of that, that restaurant, Arreos, and, you know, you'd have people would buy their tables and have their set times to go into the table. Well, you had discussed about how NFTs work. So this group is thinking about, okay, they're going to have a club membership mm -hmm. and, um, they're banking on it's going to be hot and really exciting to get into and hard to get into. So you can buy your time slot, time slot, which is awesome, right? Your NFT time slot. So here I'm a person that says, I want to pay X amount of dollars for Saturday night at seven o'clock for six people. And I will pay whatever that's worth, whatever that value is to me, I'm going to buy it. I can use it at any time. That's my table. 
No. You can just walk in. So yep. it's that time, that day, you just walk in, no questions asked. Right. Yeah. But the beauty of it is that the restaurant gets this prepaid yeah. money that they're they're selling the value of the table. Before they serve a dish, before yep. the kitchen may even be built. Right. So that's changing the model. Because one of the problems with the restaurant model is it's tight margins. It's just super slim. Well, this changes the game, right? You're getting paid for one of your assets that you weren't able to pay before. And so you're still, once they come in, they have to pay for the food, they have to pay for yeah. the drink and all that. Now, the beauty of this is, let's just say I own this slot and I, yeah. I'm going to be out of town. Yep. I can put this up for bid. What's it worth to somebody? And once that gets traded, this is where that NFT is interesting. Once it gets traded to someone, someone pays for that, the restaurant gets a cut of that, whatever percentage that is. This is brilliant. So you can sort of Airbnb your reservation. What's also interesting about this, you could imagine that people have no intention of ever going to the restaurant. They just see it mm -hmm. as an investment opportunity. Sure. Say Thomas Keller is opening up a new place in New York City. And everybody knows everybody's going to want to get a seat at that table. I'm sitting here in Boston. I'm probably never going to go to that restaurant. I probably couldn't afford to go to that restaurant. But hey, I think this could be a regular source of cash. I can just regularly sell a 7 p.m. Saturday night reservation yep. to, to punters who undoubtedly are, are going to be queuing up for this thing. It's like geek seats. Geek seats. You can go on. Right? Deep oh, geek. I'm going to be in New York. <laughs> Deep geek, yeah. I'm going to be in New York and I want to I want to buy a table here. Who knows? For a certain time. And then when you think about that, you, you, you realize the concept can be applied in so many places. I mean, the one that immediately came to mind was tea times, golf yep. tea times, Pebble Beach, eight o'clock Saturday morning. I mean, what is that worth? Is that worth a million dollars? Is that worth five million dollars? Mm-hmm. I bet it's worth at least a million dollars. And I think we're going to find out pretty soon because yeah. people are realizing, like you're saying, Rich, there's a new form of value that is being created every single day with the discovery of, of these digital tools. Right. And it's not going away anytime soon because one, there's a market. Well, there's a market for both buyers and sellers and, and, and sellers are beginning to realize there's so much opportunity here mm -hmm. to create assets where assets previously didn't exist. It's, 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 it's brilliant. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I'm looking forward to dining in the metaverse personally, <laughs> where uh, all food is digital <laughs> and somehow Mark Zuckerberg is just pumping my stomach with uh, digital calories. Sounds horrible. Yeah. Well, we'll get there soon. He's about to invest. He says $10 billion really just to make the wall street journal story go away about how Facebook is uh, hurting everybody and Instagram. But um, I don't know. That's what I'm hoping. I'm, I'm, I can't wait to, to be lounging in a prone position, headset on, eating a digital burrito. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. A mob is just, uh, is, oh God. Anyway, it'll happen one day. Yeah, you're, you're, you're reminding me of that. that it, uh, it's been a little while since I've watched the movie Wall-E with my kids, uh, yeah. which essentially predicted this future um, however, however many years ago. Steve Jobs and the Pixar Studios. No, showed fantastic. us where the showed us the conclusion here. What so, happened anyway, at the end? The apocalypse. Uh, essentially, we lost all bone structure; just turned into blobs of uh, fat because we were sitting around plugged into yeah. our screens no, all day. That's the target so. condition, I think, for humanity. <laughs> yeah, current condition: 
lungs, heart, feet, <laughs> target condition, soft blob. <laughs> yeah. Well, if that if, as that happens, the, uh, the the physically demanding work in restaurants is going to have to change. Yeah, it will. Well, um, you know, this NFT stuff. Just to get back to the subject, you know, this this is something that I think will be everybody. Thinks, it'll be tremendously interesting to see how this unfolds outside the digital realm and begins mm. to impact the physical the physical world, like like these restaurants. And if this succeeds, uh, the applications of this, you know, who knows where 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 this could go. Yeah. Um, all right, uh, that wraps up today's discussion. Uh, Josh, Rich, thanks for joining me here on the podcast. And um, see, so yeah, I guess I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks for another go. Awesome, thank you. Sounds great. Yeah, thanks for thanks for organizing. It's great. It's fun. Yeah.